it's like God just really opened up the bank for us. And we can afford to open up another place. And we can afford to open up a third place. And all the right people came around and started contributing because they saw it working. They saw kids who were ready to leave school, who were now getting better grades. And one of the parents says, I don't know what you're doing, but three months ago, my kid wouldn't talk to me. Now, he says, we talk all the time. He says, his grades went up. He's social. He says, whatever you're doing, keep doing it. What the kid did was he found something he loved. Welcome to the Good Tidings Podcast, where we highlight and inspire a community of givers with your host, the founder of the Good Tidings Foundation, Larry Harper. All right, so today I have the pleasure of wrapping up the debut season of the Good Tidings Podcast with a visit with my friend and Rock and Roll Hall of Famer, Alice Cooper, at his home here in Paradise Valley, Arizona. So I wanted to start first with a little history lesson for everyone listening. When I was 13 years old, I had a very eclectic group of childhood idols growing up in Southern California. They were Vin Scully, Leroy Neiman, and Alice Cooper. (laughs) All three, interestingly enough, were a true blessing as they would all play an integral part of starting the Good Tidings Foundation. Of course, I listened to Vin Scully call Dodger games on my transistor radio every night. I had a Leroy Neiman poster of the great Sandy Koufax thumbtacked to the wall over my bed that I would stare at while listening to my first album, School's Out. And I got that first album when my eighth grade class got to go to Warner Brothers Studios for a field trip. And after the tour, we got to go to the store and pick out an item from the store. (laughs) Most of us navigated over to the vinyl albums, and the number one song that year was Schools Out by a guy named Alice Cooper. I didn't know anything about him, but the song was great, and the album cover was even cooler. And so that is what I got. (laughs) Now, fast forward 23 years. My wife, Ronnie, and I are in Pebble Beach, California at the AT&T Golf Tournament. We were just starting out good tidings, and we were trying to go down to meet some celebrities who possibly could help us. We saw you, Alice, and your wife, Cheryl, coming out of dinner. I introduced myself, handed you my business card, as I've done hundreds of times before, except this time was different. About two weeks later, the phone rings in our house very late one night. Ronnie, my wife, says, you better get that. It's late. It's got to be somebody important. So I hopped out of bed to answer the phone, and it was you offering to help in any way you could to someone you didn't even know. And that, Alice Cooper, really, truly sets you apart from any celebrity that I know. So, with all of that, welcome to the Good Tidings (laughs) podcast. (laughs) You did have an eclectic childhood. I think mine was Zorro, Al Kaline, and uh, who, I don't know who else, uh, probably Elvis Presley, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's funny. And then the, and just how they, all three of you played such an important role in my life as we got the charity going. So I, I just want to start because I am intrigued by your kindness and you always saying yes. You know, I see you almost say yes to everybody that comes up to you. You're always willing to help. So in a world when most people want to say no, where does the yes come from? Why are you such a helper? 
You know, I, I, I always think it's such a privilege to be in the position I'm in. We were the band that was never supposed to happen. We were the band that not one record company cared about. We certainly were not a, a band that was going to get signed. We were too weird. Everybody wanted the next Crosby, Stills, and Nash. And here we were doing theater and doing hard rock and doing parts of West Side Story and doing horror and everything. And it was 1968. And people were just not ready for this at all. So we were the band that weren't supposed to make it. We were the band that was in a collision on Good Friday morning coming into Los Angeles where our van flipped over three times. I woke up on the freeway with all the guys in the band on the freeway and not one person was hurt. There was some destiny going on there. God had a different plan for us. We ended up signing with Frank Zappa. And then from Frank Zappa, we still had no success. But Bob Ezrin found us. And the next thing you know, 18 was a hit. Schools Out was a hit. And we were a national thing. But we were still the weirdest band in the world. Yeah. So now we went from being the most uncommercial band to the number one album in the country, which was Schools Out and Billion Dollar Babies after that. I always felt that at that point, I owed everybody. You know, I, it wasn't I owed them, but I just felt, how dare I say no to somebody that needs something? Here we are making more money we could ever spend and doing what we love doing more than anything else. And I just always felt I made all my money from teenagers. So I felt I should give money back to teenage or at least time or at least energy back to the world of teenagers. And that's where Solid Rock came in. Sure. So whenever you came in with this, you know, I, I went, sure, what, what can we do? Yeah. If you can use my name for good, you do it. Right. Because the name of Alice Cooper generally meant they were still <laughs> burning my albums on the 700 Club. You know, they thought I was satanic and I wasn't at all. I came right. from, I was the prodigal son. Right. Sure. You know, I came back to being a Christian and I think there's still a lot of Christians that don't believe it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, and that, that brings to an interesting point. Your father and your grandfather were evangelists. And, and Cheryl's father. And Cheryl, that's right. And your wife, Cheryl's father. So, was there any thought as a teenager that could be your path or were you going to be more rebellious to that? Well, it wasn't even rebellion. It was more, I didn't rebel against the Lord at all. I just ignored him, which might've been even worse. I grew up in the church. All my friends were church kids. Every week was Wednesday night was church meeting. Friday night was a church meeting. All day Sunday was church. All my friends were church kids. When the band started, I was in high school and cross country and all that. And I was, you know, and the band, we put the band together and it was fun because the Beatles just came out and we decided we would be a local band. We had no idea the band was going to end up going to where it was. Sure. But that did pull me away from church because we were doing shows on Sunday, doing shows on Saturday. If we were on tour, we were working every night. And I went about as far away from church as I could, but always knowing that who the Lord was, always feeling I was on thin ice because I had not accepted him on a level of saying, yes, I will be a Christian. I will follow you. I will. Sure. I was touring. Yeah. I couldn't do that. Right, right, sure. And finally got to a point where the alcoholism got to me 
drugs got to me. I woke up one morning, threw up blood, and Cheryl, my lovely wife, said, okay, party's over. I went to the hospital and everything. And when I came out of the hospital, I was the classic alcoholic. Alcohol was not alcohol to me. It was medicine. You have four interviews today. Okay, so I'd have a drink, do the interview. And I was great. If you have a drink, do the interview. Nobody knew there was a problem because I was was not a drunk drunk. I was sort of a Dean Martin kind of golden buzz yeah, drunk. Yeah. Never missed a show. Knew all my lines. If I was doing an acting part, I never, I, I knew all my lines. Never lost, you know, in other words, I was never mean, never angry. I was a perfect alcoholic, high functional. Yeah, sure. And finally one day it just got back to me. It finally mm -hmm. got to me. Yeah. When I came out of the hospital, I said, this is going to be hell because I'm going to want to drink as soon as I get out of here. That never came. That desire never came. I said, well, tomorrow is going to be awful because I'm going to wake up and I'm going to want a beer. That was gone. And I realized that God had taken it away from me. I was not a cured alcoholic. I was a healed alcoholic. And people, I, to this day, when people say, well, you know, you're, well, you got willpower, man. You're, you're, and I said, absolutely not. I said, I've, I've got no willpower. But God took alcohol away from me. And so I'm a, I'm a, I'm a walking miracle when it comes to alcohol. 37 years now hmm. without a drink. That's great. And I mean, that's, that's basically, and I'm still rock and rolling. I'm a Christian rock and roller. Yeah. You know. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and I do want to go back. You, you touched on it briefly in your high school years growing up here in Arizona. Obviously, you were into your music. I also know that you were quite accomplished visual artist as, as you were going to be arts focused in your education. And you were the Arizona State High School cross country champion. I had the record for the 22 mile run. And I did beat the national champion. Uh, wow. Kid named Scott Giddings. <laughs> and I beat name. him though in my sophomore year and the next year he won the national championship. So I never let him forget. Didn't I beat you last year? <laughs> <laughs> I, I wasn't the fastest guy on the team. There were six other guys faster than me. Wow. It's just that that one year I, I beat that guy and he ended up being the national champion the next year. So did you have equal passions for all three of those endeavors or was really back in high school music number one? Well, here's the deal. I, from Detroit, I did nothing but baseball. Hmm. When I was a kid, my life was baseball. Music was great because Elvis just came out and we were like, oh yeah, great. But I'd wake up in the morning and every kid on my block, we had our own baseball team, Sandlot. It wasn't Little League, it was Sandlot. And our block was Polish. The next block was Irish. The next block was Italian. The next block was black. And every, I'd say, who are we playing today? We're playing the Italians today. Okay. <laughs> but from the time the sun came up to the sun, sun yeah. went down, we played baseball. True Sandlot. Yeah. So when I got, when I went up for the baseball team in high school, I saw my shoe in. You kidding? I'm the best left fielder they'll ever see. I would make sure the ball was a little over my head so I could make it look a little better. You know, a little showmanship. <laughs> and I could hit anything over the plate. I mean, anything I could spot hit. Right field, okay. Left field, okay. I didn't have the arm. I did not have the arm. And I could not get that ball in effectively. So I got cut, right? And it was depressing as could be. Dennis Dunaway, who's our bass player in the original band, and John Spear, our drummer, were both on the cross-country team. I only weighed 100 pounds. And they said, well, 
If you're going to be a four-year letterman at this school, you've got to find a sport in your freshman year. Try out for cross-country. We're both on the cross-country team. Okay. I came out that night, never ran in my life. Three-mile run. And I beat four of the varsity guys. I was on the varsity team immediately. So, I mean, that's, that's how I got to start running. Then the band started. We were art majors. You know, Dennis and I were both art majors also. But the Beatles came out, and all of a sudden, we said, we got to do this. Let's, let's start a band, you know, just to play at parties. And we, we, we found John Spear, our drummer, was on the cross country, and Dennis and myself, we were all varsity guys. Right, right. Then we found the two biggest juvenile delinquents in the school, John Tatum and Glenn Buxton. Glenn was W.C. Fields basically, and the Bowery <laughs> Boys combined. Oh, goodness. Hey, hey, what's going on? You know, that guy. John Spear was in every fight after school. But the band clicked, and we started playing gigs and finally got to be a pretty big band in Phoenix called The Spiders. Yeah. And that's where we, we went on. So, yeah, basically I was Ferris Bueller. Yeah. I had the school wired. We were not only the number one cross-country team in the, in the state, we were also the number one band in the state. <laughs> oh, great. So nobody could hassle us. Right. The jocks loved us. The rockers loved us. The bad boys loved us. And our girlfriends did our homework. <laughs> so the, the four, We had it locked. <laughs> that, is, that is amazing. So for the four of you, who were your musical idols back it, in high school? Oh, at that time, the Beatles, the Rolling Stones. I mean, every band that came out of England. And, why, and, why and every is, week, another band. And why is it that everybody loved the British bands? Well, it was one of these things where, you know, we were used to the Beach Boys. Mm. We were used to the Four Seasons. Mm. We were used to Motown. And like you said, to your transistor radio, that was always on. Yeah. So there I am painting the house at summertime. It's, it's 1963. I'm painting the house and my radio is on. And all of a sudden I hear, she loves you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I went. What was that? That was a different sound. I'd never heard anything mm. like that. And then an hour later, I heard, I want to hold your hand. And I went, what? This, this was a sound I'd never heard before. And I didn't know what the Beatles looked like. I didn't know they had long hair and beetle boots and the whole thing. Then I saw who the Beatles were. Then Beatlemania happened. And by that time, I said, this is what I was born to do. I've got to do this. And we started the band. Yeah. And so I'm, all of our time really went into the band and cross country because th- those were the two things that were, didn't leave a lot of time for church. No. No. And is, is the high school band named The Spiders a take on the Beatles? Just not, we were The Spiders. Just another we, bug. And we played in the, in the biggest club in town and packed it every single night, every single weekend. My dad was working at Goodyear Aerospace, he was a top engineer. All of the guys around him were all CIA guys because he was working on top secret projects. They couldn't even tell me what he was working on. I was making more money than him. Wow. <laughs> you know, I was yeah. actually making more cash than he was. But he was saying, I make three seventy five an hour. And I go, I make a hundred a night, you know? <laughs> yeah, right. So you, you guys, uh, you, you touched on this earlier. You guys hopped in the van. You drove to LA. You're going to try to make it in the music scene. And you, some point along the way, you changed the group name to Alice Cooper. We changed the group. We and, found and out that there was we were the Naz after the Spiders. Okay, and A Z Z, 
and then found out that there was another band called the Naz. After we had pretty much established our name in L.A., and at that point then we said, okay, we're really theatrical. We could go with a really heavy name, you know, the Swamp Rats or the <laughs> Husky Baby Sandwich or whatever, you know, you're going to call it. Or we could go the other way. What if we had a name that sounded like a little old lady that lived down the street that makes cookies for everybody? And then they get us. <laughs> Alice Cooper. And I said, what about like a name like Alice Cooper? I was going to say Betty Crocker, but I said <laughs> Alice Cooper. And that name stuck. For some reason, it just stuck. And we became Alice Cooper. And I was not Alice Cooper. Right. I was still Vince. Yeah. It got to a point where everybody just kept calling me Alice. They figured the lead singer's name was Alice Cooper. Sure. And so I changed my name legally to Alice Cooper. And we were the most notorious band because <laughs> we did things that were so outrageous and the press ate it up, but we were good at it. Sure. And the music is what talked. The songs were really good. And that's what really, if you don't have the songs, you're a puppet show. But Bob Ezrin was our George Martin. He was the guy that took the songs we had and turned them into hits. And so we had hit after hit. We had like seven gold albums or platinum albums in a row. Then people look at you. You're not the underdog now. Now people are trying to be you. Right. You know? Yeah. Does anybody call you Vince anymore? The only person, my mom yeah. and Keith Richards. Oh, good. Keith Richards will not call me Alice. He goes, Vinny, 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 how are you doing, Vinny? He says, Vinny, how long has it been since you've had a drink? And I said, well, I don't know, 35 years. And he goes, ah, begs the question, why? <laughs> That's Keith classic. Keith is the salt of the earth. He's the sure. coolest guy, but he will not call me Alice. That's funny. Vince. I'm Vinny. So when you get to L.A., who or whom or what really gave you the big break? What was the turning point? Well, Frank Zappa was mm -hmm. the only one that would touch us because we were so outrageous. Yeah. Nobody else would touch us. And he was putting a new record company together called Bizarre Records. And he had Wildman Fisher, and he had the GTOs, and he had Captain Beefheart, and he had Alice Cooper. We were unexplainable. He used to listen to our songs and Pretties for You and go, I don't get it. And I'd say, well, is that good? And he goes, I'm Frank Zappa and I don't get it. That's good. Yeah. You know, because you guys are not like anybody else. So that's what we got. But the first two albums bombed. Nobody was ready for it. Then we got Bob Ezrin. Then we got on Warner Brothers and we had 18. It was a big national hit. And then we had Schools Out number one record and then we had no more mr nice guy all, yeah. the, all the hits came yeah. after that and at that point then we were actually outselling the rolling stones wow we were voted the biggest band in the world but we were also drinking mm -hmm. we were not doing drugs as much as we were drinking because we realized how illegal and how much it could ruin your career sure that didn't say we weren't doing them we just were not traveling with them you know, and when I say drugs, I mean marijuana, you know, but you could drink. Yeah. That was legal. Yeah. So I was, I didn't realize I was becoming an alcoholic. It was just a very slow process where everybody else could stop drinking. And I just kept drinking. Myself and Glenn were both, were the two alcoholics. He died at 49, hmm. you know, and I, I quit drinking way before that. Sure. You have this eclectic group of people 
follow these celebrity types that would be at your shows or tell us about some of these characters and how did that came to be? It was the weirdest thing. The people that were attracted to us were the people you would never expect. Salvador Dali was attracted to Alice because it was surrealism to him. He would see our show and it was so surrealistic looking that he gave himself the credit because he really was an influence on us. We were all art majors. Sure. Salvador Dali. Yeah. And then I got to work with Salvador Dali on a project where I was the subject of one of his pieces of art because he felt comfortable using me because I was surrealistic also. Groucho Marx comes to the show and he sees it as vaudeville because that's what he was. He was vaudeville and he saw the comedy in our show. Mm-hmm. You know, it didn't matter if it was rock and roll. He just saw it and he went, oh, he got the jokes yeah. in the show. So he would bring Mae West, Jack Benny, oh, goodness. Fred Astaire, George Burns. They would all be on the side of the stage watching the show. And they were not shocked at anything that we did. The audience was shocked. The vaudeville, vaudevillians were all like, oh, yeah. <laughs> they saw it as just showbiz. I was the only rock and roller in the Friars Club. The Friars Club was Jerry Lewis, Frank Sinatra, all those guys, all the tuxedo guys, the Rat Pack, everybody. I was the only rock and roller in there because they saw me as something other than just rock and roll. They saw the sense of humor in it and they kind of thought it was cool that I was in the, you know. So I hung out with all those classic comedians. Yeah, just what a great great you know, life experience. Yeah. Where and where did the theatrics and the fashion? Where did that come from? I don't think that was that born out of Arizona or did that No, no, it wasn't. It was born in the fact that we were the first generation where television was our babysitter. We were the first generation where my mom would put us down in front of the TV and we could watch cartoons all day. And we would watch all the great old sitcoms and the afternoon movie would be on. And we would sit there all day just mesmerized by this black and white TV. We grew up with it. And then on weekends, everybody on the whole block would go to the East Town movie theater. And we would watch Creature from the Black Lagoon, the thing from outer space. It came from, you know, the brain that wouldn't die in black and white. And I think at a very young age, I saw the comedy in it. I saw how ridiculous it was. And I equated the fact that it was scary, but it was funny. Later on, that played a very big part in my show. I said, it's okay to be scary and to be the villain as long as it has a sense of humor to it. But let's scare the audience and then let them in on the joke a little bit at a time. But you have to back it up with this great rock and roll music. Yeah. So the three things in bed together was rock and roll, comedy, and horror. There was no part of religion in there at all. No, no. And, but there was never anything satanic. Right. Because I still had that in my back of my head. I would never allow anything satanic in the show. And I would never swear on stage. Mm-hmm. I, I would never, you know, use all, sure. the, all the rock and roll. To this day, I would never do that. Yeah. I wanted Alice to be the gentleman villain <laughs> that was, you know, he might slit your throat on stage. <laughs> but he would never, ever swear at you. <laughs> so he was a bit, there was all kinds of, but the more we did things like that, the more the audience loved it. Right, sure. Because nobody was doing it. We had a wide open canvas to paint. 
And there was nobody to say, no, you can't do that. The ones that were saying, no, you can't do that were the establishment that all the kids hated. Right. So we were fine. Still, in the back of my mind, though, I still felt like if this airplane goes down, I'm in a lot of trouble because I know who the Lord is and I have not accepted it. Right. I finally got to a point after I got sober where I just, I had to give in. Mm-hmm. God wasn't knocking at my door. He was banging it. He was knocking it down with a, with yeah. a bazooka. And yeah. I finally said, yes. So this kind of sort of anti-Beatles, anti-Stones kind of band you're creating, did you ever think it could backfire? Like, maybe the parents will hate me too much? or Because I know the kids are going to love me. Well, here was the deal. We realized one thing, that when you climb out on the limb, you're either going to be a genius if it works or a total moron if it doesn't yeah there's no middle yeah so we went as far on that limb as we could and it kept getting more the further out we got the more people liked it we were the bad boys but at the same time we were lovable yeah and we didn't do anything that was illegal Mm -hmm. we didn't have any nudity on stage we didn't have any anything that you could really bust us for yeah it's just that we were outrageous yeah and that's what people wanted. They wanted somebody outrageous. They wanted a rock star to be a rock star. After that, you had Bowie, you had Kiss and everything, but we were the first ones that broke those doors down. Sure, you know? sure. And I, I know people are familiar now with your Hollywood vampire group with Joe Perry, yourself, and Johnny Depp. Yeah. There was a vampire group back then, and you formed, and who the was The Drinking in, Club. And who was in this club? Okay, The Drinking Club was... <laughs> I read somewhere that in the 30s, in the 40s, there was a drinking club, Errol Flynn, John Barrymore, W.C. Fields, all the, all the heavy drinkers. And at one point, Barrymore died. And they went to the mortuary, and they got him. And they brought him in. They sat him up in the chair where they all met to drink. And they sat and drank with him all night. He was dead. And I kind of went, that's really romantic. There's something really funny, and I get it. We started drinking at the Rainbow Club. Myself, Bernie Toppin, Mickey Dolenz from the Monkees, Harry Nielsen, John Lennon, Keith Moon. Every night we would all end up there, and they finally gave us the roost. You know, we'd take us off the off the main floor and put us up in the attic, kind of like. And it was the lair of the vampire. And the reason they call us the vampires is because they said we never see you during the day, and all you do is drink at night. That's what a vampire does. You're the Hollywood vampires. Interesting. And so it was a drinking club. Later on, most of those guys died, you know. But later on, I was doing a movie with Johnny Depp. And I was mentioning the fact that the Hollywood vampires. And we kind of said, wouldn't it be great to, to put a bar band together and just kind of like do all the songs from our dead drunk friends, all our dead drunk friends. Joe Perry said, I'm in. Next thing you know, Duff McKagan from Guns N' Roses, I'm in. And Johnny was a killer guitar player. People didn't know that. He was a really good guitar player. That band, the first show was for 200 people. The second show was 200,000 at Rock and Rio. Oh, goodness. Because we realized one thing. Everybody in that band is from a mega band. Right. And we're used to playing in front of 200,000 people. The only one that wasn't was Johnny. He was in a bar band called The Kids. But he was a, he just fit right in. 
he got up on stage and I had to I had to kind of push him a little bit and say, now that you're a rock star, play a rock star on stage. And he, he ended up just falling right into it. And he was great up there. And as good a guitar player as anybody. Yeah, that's great. Two years ago, you were uh, you were really great in Jesus Christ Superstar Live, which went on to win an Emmy. How was that experience for you, doing that sort of a performance? Well, now, now I'm Christian, right? Yeah. You know, And I'm still playing Alice Cooper. I'm still playing this comedic villain. And people know I'm Christian. I'm very vocal about it, you know, and they're still accepting me in rock and roll. I mean, I'm not blackballed because I'm a Christian. They, they still go, wow, the show is still great. And I happen to know Tim Rice pretty well, who wrote the lyrics for all of the Weber shows. And 10 years ago, they were going to redo the original cast album. And he says, I really want Herod to be a different character than what we've got here. And he says, how would you play it? And I'd say, I would make him more arrogant and make him more aloof. Like, this is all about me, not about Jesus. You've been and so that's the way I played it, and they loved it. All around this place, healing cripples, raising the dead. And now I understand your God. Wow. At least that's what you said. So uh, the Christ, yes. Ten years later, they're going to do it live on NBC. They've got John Legend as Jesus. They've got, you know, all these great Broadway stars. And they called me up. And they said, do you want to play Herod? And I went, yeah. <laughs> and I said, What's, what is the gig? And they said, it's live. National TV. There's no two takes at it. It's live. And I'm going, that's what I do. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, they, they, I think they forgot that every night it's live. If you make a mistake, it's live. You don't get to redo it. Yeah. So everybody in the cast had three months of rehearsal. I had three days because I was on tour. I would come into New York and rehearse the Herod part. and then Now, the nervous part is this. There's Weber and there's... Tim Rice in the front row, and it's 3,000 people live, and it's live on national TV, and you don't get a second try at it. And the weird thing inside me was the fact that here's Jesus, John Legend, on his knees, and I've got to come down these stairs and not even notice him. That's how arrogant Herod was. And then finally, he looks around, and he looks, and he goes, Jesus really, you know, snide, <laughs> like, what are you doing sure. here? And he does the whole song around Jesus. And at the end, he says, get out of my life and throws the mic down. And the audience went crazy, you know, because it was, it was a Herod they'd never seen before. Yeah, you know, sure. And it was, to me, it was like, I'm glad that's over because I was worried about every lyric. I was worried about missing us. I didn't write that song. Those guys wrote that song, and I better hang it, sing it right, and I better get the lyrics right, because the theatrics depended on it, what was going on. And when we got it right, and I walked off stage, oh, I've never so relieved in my life, because they loved it. They were cheering, you know, and yeah. that, that, that to me was like, wow, I'm glad that's over. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're, you're so naturally theatric. Is there more Broadway-type 
potential in your future? I feel like what we do on stage now is Broadway. You know, I mean, Welcome to My Nightmare was a Broadway show. That's how I met Cheryl. We were going to do Billion Dollar Babies was a really produced show. Very glitzy rock and roll like nobody had ever seen. My idea was to make it even more. I wanted dancers, but I didn't want rock and roll dancers. I wanted Broadway dancers. And we were going to use props, and there was going to be lighting. It was going to be a Broadway show with a storyline, only it was a nightmare. Nobody had ever done this before. And Cheryl got wind that there was an audition. 2,000 girls showed up for the audition. And they saw Cheryl dance and said, stop you. They picked her immediately. They said, she's the cream of the crop. She's the best dancer here. And she was immediately in. Now, you don't tell me God had a part in that because I never would have met her right? other than that. Yeah. And, you know, we didn't really fall in love till the end of the tour. And that was just the great love affair, you know, yeah. 44 years. She's still in the show, still plays about four different parts in the show. And she's better now than she was then. Yeah, that's just wonderful. And over the years, ever since high school, it seems like you've been writing songs and always are dabbling in songs. Yeah. Are songs still coming to you now? Even? Oh, yeah. Just always. finished an album about Detroit. Mm -hmm. My 30th album, I think it is. And I'm working with Bob Ezrin, of course, again, because he's my, my producer. He's the only one that gets Alice Cooper more than me. Yeah, we, we really kind of own that character. And we decided, let's do an homage to Detroit. So we went to Detroit, wrote the songs in Detroit, got a De all Detroit band, guys from Mitch Ryder, guys from all the different Detroit bands. And album was about Detroit. Motown, we had Motown horn sections, we had Motown background singers, the whole thing like that. And the album's coming out, I think, February. But it's a great album. It's a guitar-driven rock and roll album. And I'm already started writing the next album. So I'm continuously writing. I'm always writing. And I might write songs that don't fit my show. And I might hear another band and go, hey, I have a song that might fit your band. Try this. You know, and sometimes yeah. they go, ah, that doesn't fit us. And other times they go, oh, yeah, that's good. You know, yeah. so. Yeah, one of your songs, I just think it's knowing you as one of the nice guys. You have this great song entitled No More, Mr. Nice Guy. Is that a comedic take on yourself, well, or what's the story it, on that? It was written exactly when everybody could not say anything. I've been insulted by everybody. <laughs> and they just said, I'm the worst thing that ever happened to this generation. Our kids are snakes and babies on stage and makeup, and he's got a girl's name. And, you know, this is the devil's music, which it wasn't, you know. And I went, okay, that does it. Gloves are off. No more Mr. Nice Guy. And they go, it gets worse? <laughs> and I went, yeah. <laughs> and Bob and I had this great, the song was a pop song. No more Mr. Nice Guy. Yeah. And I was telling the audience, it's going to get more theatrical than this. It was a hit record. Yeah, you know? it really was. So what is, um, what is your most requested song, do you think? School's Out School's will always out. be this yeah. song. 
I have a theory that every band has one song that they will always be associated with, no matter how many great songs they write. The Beatles is probably I Want to Hold Your Hand. Right. The Stones, Satisfaction. The Who, My Generation. Alice Cooper, School's Out. That will always be the song. I've written better songs since then, but that is the song everybody, you could go to China and sing that and they would know that song. It became an anthem. So that's the one that's the real one, but it's not the best song we ever wrote. Yeah, interesting, yeah. So I want to dive in, really, this podcast is really designed to highlight the great givers that we've come across in our 25 years of Good Tidings. And But starting out, were you charitable even as a young kid, you thought, or do you do you look back and see, oh yeah, I, I did this, I was this, and that's why I'm doing this now with Solid Rock. Were you charitable even young? I think what you know, I think that God gives everybody different gifts. Some people are great organizers. Some people are are great this and that. You know, people pray. Some people I know that pray so well. I just go, wow, that's just magnificent prayer. I think He gave me a gift of compassion where I could not see somebody suffer. It was hard for me to see any, any, even animals. I couldn't stand to see animals suffer. Or knowing that we had this, and here's a family that's barely getting along, and because we were not rich, our family wasn't. We, we had a lot of one Christmas presents, you know, one present at Christmas. And I, I got that. And I was happy with that. That didn't matter. But... I always felt that if somebody really deserved something and I had it, I was going to give it. That just made, it didn't make, you know, never wanted anybody to say, oh yeah, what a great guy. It was to me supplying something that that family needed. Now, the way Solid Rock started was we were giving money to a thing called Neighborhood Ministries. One lady had a block. She was doing everything on her own and taking care of kids, mostly in gang neighborhoods. So we would put money together and make sure she was taken care of. I watched a really awkward drug deal go down. Two kids on a bike, you know, in that area. And I, I kind of went, how does that kid not know he might be the best guitar player in town? Or that kid over there might be the best drummer. They've never had that opportunity. What if we put Solid Rock and made it into a place where any teenager could come in, rich, poor, gay, smart, dumb, black, white, teenager, any teenager, doesn't matter who they are, Muslim, Christian, Jew, you're a teenager, you're welcome. Here's a room for guitars, here's a room for bass, there's a room for drums, there's a dance studio in there, there's an art studio because of you guys in there, there's a photography studio, there's a video studio. Find what you're good at. Go find something that really turns you on. And we would get 100 kids a day in there. Half of them were gang-related. The other half were rich. But what did they have in common? Music. This was all taken out of school, remember? Yeah. There was no arts in school anymore. Right, right. So they were hungry to express themselves. And I told them, I said, doesn't matter how bad the song is, doesn't matter how bad you play guitar, doesn't matter how stupid your painting is, that's your painting. That painting did not exist yesterday. That song did not exist yesterday. Yesterday, you couldn't play three chords. Today, you can play four. So just keep coming back. And they did. Yeah. I think that the, the interesting thing for me, 
you know, as we dive into talking to more people, most people think when you support a deserving child, they're needy because of their financial issues. You see past that and say, a teenager has struggles no matter what, and you're all welcome. And I, I, I do love that. Well, and that's a, the Christian way to look at it. And, you know, kids are not stupid. They pretend like they are. But the first thing they go is, what's the catch? I said, catch is you show up. You don't owe any money. You don't have to read Bible verses. You, nobody's going to ask you to do anything except show up and practice and kind of observe the rules. We know all the words, guys. We've heard every swear word there is. <laughs> I said, you have to remember who I am. Yeah. You know, I said, but we encourage you not to swear. And girls, too. The girls were as bad as the boys were, were as far as their language. And these kids finally got to a point where they would come. The ownership, they had an ownership of this place now where it was their place. It was safe. It was creative. And this is our place now. Every teenager is at risk because a lot of people would say, well, you know, those kids on the West side, they're selling drugs. I said, to who? The kids on the East side with the money. <laughs> I said, who's in more trouble? They're sure. all at risk. Yeah. I said, all they need to get them off of that is something more creative than that. Yeah. Do you, do you see yourself in some of these teens you serve? Like, do you see the young Vincent in high school? Oh, man. If we would have had a place to rehearse like that, you know, and, I mean, we were in garages and living rooms and every place we could. If there was a guy that actually, if we could have gone to a place and they would have taught me to sing better, or if they would have taught our bass player to play better or our drummer to play better, we would have been there every day. And then there's a recording studio for free. I mean, we had a little tape recorder. That's all we had, you yeah, know. Sure. But I think a lot of that did go back to my my garage days of rehearsing. If we would have had a place like Solid Rock, 30,000 square feet with a stage, wow, you're going to progress a lot faster. Yeah. You know. We started our charities both the same year back in 1995, and you've talked a little bit here about Solid Rock, but... Tell us a little bit more about the mission and the vision for you. Well, to, to me, it's it broke down to we believe, we care, cool. That was our motto. We care about you, we believe in you, and we believe in God. Cool. And that was a very simple way of saying it to teenagers. One thing that we, that we did that was very interesting was we did a um, questionnaire thing at Alhambra High School pretty tough high school. And we said, what are the three things that you're most concerned about if we open this place? The three things that came back were, is it safe? And we said, yeah, it's safe. There's not going to be any, nobody's going to drive by and shoot anybody. There's actually a little police department right next door. So it's safe. The next one was, what about childcare? And of course, being adults like we are, we went, oh no, it's for teenagers, see? For 13 to 19 and the girls are going yeah is there child care we have babies and we went oh yeah there'll be child care the third thing was the one that shocked me the most are there going to be a bunch of adults there well i said you know yeah there's going to have to be some adults there because we have to have people counselors and like you know they have to get and they went no you don't understand we don't have dads some of these girls are going I can't go to my dad and ask him a question about what's going on. I can't go to my mom 
she's in jail. My dad's gone, went left when I was three. We would love to have somebody to ask life questions about. Yeah. And that just took me back. I just went, unbelievable. Yeah. We have such a sheltered life. And some of these kids have lived more life in 14 years and seen more than most adults have in 50 years. Yeah. They've been, in, they've been involved in suicides, murders, drug addiction, mom's a prostitute, dad's a drug dealer, and some of these other kids go, I never see my parents. I haven't seen them. I see them once a week. They're in Europe. They're, they leave me the house. So there's two different ways of looking at yeah. that. It's, I need direction. And they don't want to say that, but they do. That's what they want. They want somebody to say, well, this is how you do it. So that's why they felt so at home there. They went there and they knew there was people there that would go, hey, well, tell me about it. We're not allowed to be, we're not counselors on a level of, tell me what's going on at home. We never ask that. We just go, what's the problem? Yeah, yeah. You know, and then if we can send them to a counselor, we do. But we're not psychologists. Right, right. We're just, all we do is we just open the place and say, here, here it is. Yeah. Yeah, what I think is interesting for people to know, especially anyone thinking about even starting a nonprofit, it, even Alice Cooper, who's one of the most prominent people here in Phoenix, had a tough time even getting a space initially. You you had this amazing mission. Unbelievable. And it, yeah, and it, it all made sense. You're raising money. You're doing all this stuff for everyone. But it took a while. But you know, Nobody that, wanted it in their neighborhood. Yeah, it's interesting. That was the incredible thing. We were going to, first thing we were going to open was a Christian coffee house for kids, teenage. We found this little air, this little place, right? This nice neighborhood. We went to the city council. There was a city council meeting. And they said, uh, the people that live around there don't want teenagers there. I said, the place closes at nine o'clock. Yeah, they don't want teenagers in the neighborhood like that. Do you know what ended up there? A strip bar. <laughs> of course. That, that closed at two o'clock with drunks driving out of there and every kind of whatever's going on, they would rather have that than Christian teenagers having coffee. <laughs> That's what we were up against. Yeah. And I didn't get that. I thought, oh, this is going to be a piece of cake. When I tell them it's going to be a place where their kids can come and learn this and it's safe and it's wholesome mm -hmm. and it's creative, oh, man, people are going to want 20 of these. We're going to be rolling in this. We couldn't get anybody to back us. We found out later on, we learned a lot, and you, you've learned this too. Big companies will give to programs. They don't give to bricks and mortar. Yeah. Until we actually got the place open and it was a real thing and they could come and see it, then they would start giving grants. Then they went, oh, okay. Then yeah, we'll give you. Now Fender, gave us all the guitars we wanted. They gave us amps, they gave us drums before we were an actual place. So I give them a lot of credit. Yeah. Uh, when you did our golf tournament, Callaway gave us everything we needed. There are certain companies that really stepped up to the plate on an idea, not an actual place. And I still really give all my credit to those, those people for helping us out. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Earlier today, I had the pleasure of stopping off at a new location in Mesa, Arizona, where you're going to open your second Solid Rock Teen Center. Yeah. And we built the art studio in the first one. We're going to do an art studio here in Mesa. 
Why are the arts so important for teenagers? It's their it's their culture. It's so funny because we well the other day here's an example of this. You've got 13, 14, 15 year old kids from every nationality in there. And Cheryl and I are doing a talk to young life leaders that are all 17, 18 years old. And I, I was telling him about addiction. And I said, you know, most of my friends died. Jimi Hendrix, Jim Morrison, Janis Joplin, they're my friends. They died. And I looked around and I went, you don't know who I'm talking about, do you? <laughs> they had no idea who those people were. Wow. Then I realized they had no idea who I was. <laughs> you know, they much. know who Post Malone is. Right. They know who all these new guys are, but my generation, they don't they don't know the classics, you know? And I went, okay, that's interesting. So these kids at Solid Rock that are 15 have no idea who I am. They finally, after a while, they learn, oh, he was the guy. Oh, wow, he did this rock and roll. Oh, he was pretty cool. You know, but they didn't go there knowing who I was. They went there because they were hungry to perform mm-hmm. or they were hungry to express themselves one yeah. way or another. Yeah. Is it possible you think your calling now is stronger to serve than it was 25 years ago even? Oh, yeah, I think so. Mm-hmm. I think so. And, you know, now we've learned so much about it and... I've got a, a board of everything from doctors to lawyers to bankers to everything like this. And we all sit around and we're all astonished. There was at one point, not more than 20 years ago, maybe 15 years ago, where we had $500 in the bank. And finally we got this place open and now it's like God just really opened up the bank for us. Yeah. And we can afford to open up another place and we can afford to open up a third place. And all the the right people came around and started contributing because they saw it working. They saw kids who were ready to leave school who were now getting better grades. And one of the parents says, I don't know what you're doing, but three months ago, my kid wouldn't talk to me. Now, he says, we talk all the time. He says, his grades went up. He's social. He says, whatever you're doing, keep doing it. What the kid did was he found something he loved. And he found a, an art that he loved and he really got involved in the parents, promoted it. Yeah, go do this. So his whole world changed. He didn't get up in the morning with nothing to do except go out in the street and see what was out there. Now he's going, I gets up in the morning, goes, does, goes to school and then goes, now I get to go play guitar. Yeah. You're a very spiritual person, obviously. Do you think that helps you even to dream bigger and to, to see yourself and, and solid rock growing even to oh, greater man. stages? I see, like I said, I'm from Detroit. I'm from the big, bad city, the murder capital of the world. Detroit needs 20 of these. And it would serve so many kids, and it would turn kids that would be in jail or dead into real citizens people that were that now are in bands or now are teaching music or now are doing this or now are doing that because it changes their the flow of their river. You know, they were going this way and all of a sudden they go, well, yeah, but I could do this now. Yeah, it's vocational. Sure. And it, it also makes them believe in themselves. And hopefully they get a, a good dose of who Jesus is. Yeah. You know? Yeah, and I, I, I do like the fact that it's, 
a Christian organization, but it's really a non-denominational organization. It's not a church. It's, it's, yeah, it's, it's for everyone. You know. And I like you know, the service part of what your life is now, but you're setting an example for everyone, whether you're a Christian or not. You're setting an example to be a server, a giver, well, yeah, a there's a, you know, I mean, none of, nobody's getting rich. <laughs> People are barely making minimum wage that work there. And there's no financial gain at all. In fact, we have to really push to get the budget, but that's fine. That's what, if that's what God, if that's what God wants me to do, then that's why I didn't get killed in that car accident. That's why I didn't die of alcoholism because two kids might come to Christ. One kid comes to Christ is worth it. We had one girl that was on her way to commit suicide and ended up coming over to solid rock. And she was there every day at three o'clock after that. And finally outaged the place. And I told the board, I said, if she's the only person that survived because of solid rock, 20 years, 25, 30 years of this is worth it. I said, because she was going to die and now she's not. I said, and that's not because of us. That's because she found something that we put together that she wanted to live now. Yeah. I said, that's, that's God working. That's not us working. Well, I, I just want to thank you, one, first of all, for making that phone call that one late night to my house. <laughs> and thanks for all you do, you know, bringing creativity to kids here in the Valley, where arts and music and dance are all but removed from our school system. And yep. now these kids, they should all know they have this great place to go. But your place, you know, same thing. When we went to San Francisco, went to the lunch there, I brought my mom. Yes. And... I saw a bunch of people that were dedicated to helping people. And I went, anytime I can help this group out, I'm there. Yeah. You know, because you were doing the same thing yeah. we were doing. Yeah. You were doing it in a different way. You were doing it at different board meetings, I'll bet, and things like that. But we all were doing God's work. And all we're called to do is be available. Yeah. We go out there and just go, look, we're not trained to do this. You know, while we're doing this, teach us how to do it. And really, that's how we learned how to do it. We just trial and error. Yep. And I think you just need to be available. Yeah. Well, and I encourage everyone listening to this podcast, if you're ever in the Phoenix area, to stop by one of the two Solid Rock locations. Take a, take a tour. In the show notes, we'll have ways you can connect with Solid Rock. We'll put that out there. And Alice runs one of the best golf tournaments you'll ever have in the spring and a great Christmas pudding concert each December for anybody looking to come out and support what he's doing and and say hi to the great Alice Cooper. (laughs) So anyway, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for just letting me hang out here in your home today and your friendship has meant the world to me and my family and Thank you for everything. Well, I watched your kids grow up. That's right. I mean, they were little kids when we first met. And same, same with our kids. Yeah. You know, and I keep picturing your son being 12 years old, hitting a golf ball. <laughs> you know, what's he now? He's in. He's 28 <laughs> and still hits it further than both of us, unfortunately. And he's, a, and he's a, working on his master's. Yeah. What? And my daughter, she serves on the board. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you, Alice Cooper. And it's always a pleasure and best to you and your family. Also. Well, thank you. And, you know, welcome here anytime.
have just enjoyed an episode of the Good Tidings Podcast, highlighting the goodness in people. To learn more about and to support the Good Tidings Foundation, log on to goodtidings.org. This monthly program is brought to you by the generosity of responseresponsibility.org. Don't miss out on the Good Tidings Podcast by reviewing and subscribing to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.